I'm Arthur. And I'm Susan. This is the Parent Talk Podcast. Managing the challenges of daily parenting. Thanks to our founding sponsor, Naturepedic, the nation's most trusted source of organic and healthy sleep products for your children. You can visit them at naturepedic.com. That's naturepedic.com. Welcome back to the Parent Talk podcast series on sleep. And we're pleased to present our third in the series. If you've listened to our first and second podcast on sleep, you'll know a lot about what sleep is, how it works, how to help your whole family get a whole night's sleep. This one is going to talk about some of the toughest challenges. So we're really excited about sharing our experience of helping people achieve a good night's sleep. And, and really, there's a lot of nuance in this. So we are not about enforcing anything. We're not telling you there's a, a best path. We're giving you some choices and telling you what works, depending on what choices you think work best for you and your children. I've been talking to a lot of young parents about sleep. I mean, a lot of them want to go and pay a lot of money to sleep therapists or sleep specialists. And as we're talking about this, it feels like the world has divided into two almost armed camps. Those that say the baby just has to cry it out and figure it out how to get to the sleep. Otherwise, you will not have well-established sleep routines and your child will never be a good sleeper. And the other side is saying, never let your child cry it out. When your child's crying for you in the middle of the night, they need you, they're calling for you because they're distressed and you need to go to them. And that's what sort of distresses me a little bit, because it isn't two armed camps. You said it yourself, every family has to find their own path. A combination of those two things can work. If you know that your child is going through a difficult time or your family is in a difficult time, you're on a trip or there's been an illness, those are times where you're saying, what sleep training doesn't make sense. I'm going to go in and comfort my child because that's what he needs. That's what I need as the parent, you might say. On the other hand, there might be times when you realize that your child is well over four months old, eating well, sleeping during the day, doing well, and you just say, I really need to get a full night's sleep. Otherwise, I'm not going to be a good worker in the morning, a good parent in the morning. Then that's the path that you need to choose. Absolutely. That leads us into our first topic of discussion, which is the question. What's the main question around sleep? And we want to share with our listeners that we've been reading the books on sleeping through the night for kids, which is the number one reason parents seek consultation for help parenting, by the way, in early childhood. Most of the books focus on the question of crying. So when they talk about sleep, they propose the number one question is whether you should sleep or not to sleep. They think about child sleep as like reading the play Hamlet. And Hamlet is to be or not to be. And for most of these books, the question is, to cry or not to cry. That is yeah, their question. Right. <laughs> that is not our question. We're not trying to have anyone cry. If some child can find their way to sleep tonight without crying, we think that would be beautiful. Our entire approach asks a totally different question, which is how can we help your child? How can you help your child find their own solution to the challenge of falling asleep on their own? Again, if they can do that without crying, great. If they cry at times, that's not the goal. The goal continues to rest squarely with the child experiencing the thrill of solving a problem that they created with a solution that they created. We want to share that when we shift the attention away from the question of crying towards the question of mastering a skill, we've seen over 10,000 families experiencing a child literally enjoy the thrill of solving a problem, of mastering a skill, of being trusted to think, 
and act and sort things out. That's what our question is, is how do we help your child find their path to a, a mastering a new skill? You know, obviously that is the absolute crux of this issue in a nutshell. This isn't about saying we want your child to cry themselves to sleep. It's about finding whatever path works for that child and your family so everyone feels well-rested the next morning. And I will tell you another thing that sometimes people don't take into account is the idea of an average. Because they'll say, I've been looking at TikTok, you know, looking to what moms would say. They say, I swallow my baby, I put them down, 12 hours later they wake up. And I go, uh, hello? This is like in a dream world. And, and I'm not suggesting that these parents aren't telling the truth. I think that they are. But isn't that lovely? you know, that their child can do that. Now, I have three children. You have three children as well. And I bet you've had a similar experience. My three children had such different sleep needs that it was absurd. My oldest needed the minimum amount of sleep that a child could have and still grow in a healthy way. I mean, she would sleep even as a toddler just eight or nine hours a night and barely nap. And you know something, as an, as an adult with children of her own, she still has a very, very low sleep need. Her younger sister, on the other hand, easily could sleep 13 hours at a night and take a two hour nap in the afternoon when she was five. <laughs> so everyone is different. And I love the way you talk about the averages, that how we have to get rid of that idea. The story I like to tell about averages is uh, anyone who's been to camp, and the camp, of course, serves lunch. Well, most camps figure out the average amount should be served. That's what they serve. Well, guess what? Everyone in the camp's unhappy with that approach because half the kids eat less than average and half the kids eat more. So everyone's unhappy. And the same goes for developmental steps and for sleep needs. So let's say the average amount of sleep you need at the year of age is 13 hours. That means there's going to be some kids, like one of yours, Susan, who only needs eight. And there's going to be others who need 14. And it'd be a terrible thing to make the kid who only really needs eight hours of sleep to stay alone for 14 hours. And it wouldn't be right to rob the 14-hour child of, what is it, six hours and wake them up after eight. So no, uh, the average is meaningless for the individual. It's a good number to describe group behavior, but parents don't raise groups. They raise children. And so (laughs) what you want to know is your child's need, not the average need of 2 million children, which is meaningless. So I'm really glad you brought that up. Such an important point as we go through these sleep challenges to keep in mind that the number of hours your child sleeps tonight is entirely up to their brain and their body's needs. And they'll tell you that because you'll see if they're well-rested in the morning after the number of hours that they get. So let's just say right up front, that's a terrible thing to see. There's no argument that it's a terrible thing to see your child suffer. And we reject any value in that concept at all. So any books or ideas that say there's some virtue in crying per se, we reject. And, and, and there's few signals that tell us our child is suffering better than crying. But we want to make the point that not all crying is suffering. Crying can indicate suffering, but it can also indicate anger. It could also be a protest of disappointment. It could also mean that the diaper's wet. It could also mean that they're hungry. So there's different ways to read what the crying signals. So not all crying at night when the baby wakes up to call for you is a signal of of suffering. So for instance, uh, if your baby's hungry, cuddling them isn't going to help a whole lot. So the answer to all crying isn't cuddling. And if they want to be cuddled, feeding them is not going to help. So it's good to know what the crying is about. And it's good to keep in mind that crying itself isn't always a sign of suffering. 
And to that end, I think we should open up a discussion, Susan, about one of our favorite problem-solving concepts, which is featured in our book, Who's the Boss? Moving Families from Conflict to Collaboration. And we make a distinction there between trauma and disappointment. We define trauma as experience that leaves a long-term disruption in the relationship between people who love each other or long-term level of damage within one's mind that affects long-term emotional, psychological health. That's universal. And it's an excellent reason, I think, that we encourage parents to be very thoughtful about avoiding traumatic events to their children. And we respect the fact that parents are very apprehensive about any advice that could introduce anything that hints at being traumatic. We fully support that. And we'll be devoting episodes to this very real and highly valuable goal. But we want to make a distinction here between that very real thing, trauma, and another real thing, which is disappointment. Now, disappointment we define as a mild experience of an expectation not being met. So we would say disappointment happens when a small expectation fails to happen. Later on, there may be a memory of disappointment, but often no trace at all of any memory. And by definition, a disappointment is a failed expectation, has no long-term harm to the person's mind or life. They do not reorder relationships like traumas do. So if you're at the county fair and you get four lollipops instead of five lollipops, you may be grievously disappointed but you're not traumatized. You could see that disappointment is very transient. And it's, and it's something that can happen to a child, in fact, to an adult, several times in a day, where a traumatic experience is something that happens, hopefully, very sporadically or just once or twice or three times in a person's lifetime, a truly traumatic experience. And disappointment is something that happens constantly and continually. In fact, I can't think of a day that each of us don't experience some disappointment. It's almost like uh, like uh, in relationship, we talk about being attuned. The disappointment is when you're not attuned. You're not always on the same page with each other. So those are disappointments. Now, when infants are disappointed, they almost always let the grownups know. They may cry, they may frown, they may get a bit fussy. But when they do cry, that can sound like the cry of any other cause. Just like we said before, a wet diaper, being hungry, wanting to be cuddled, they could all sound that very similar, but they're different. If there's a cry of someone in the middle of the night who wants to wake up and be with their parent and nothing else is wrong, we're pretty confident that is the cry of disappointment and not trauma. Now, how do we know that? When we talk to parents after they've sleep trained their children, or even any night they let their child find a way to get back to sleep, we have never seen anything happen the next morning or days later or years later as a result of that. This is an observation we've made over 30 years period, and as we mentioned, helping 10,000 people. So I think at some point we would have heard something about lasting harm done by letting your child find their own path to get to sleep. Well, I want to say two things on that. First of all, anyone who's had a toddler who got the red cup instead of the blue cup and started crying and really showing a lot of disappointment taken out of context, you could say, my God, that child is traumatized. When you know that having the red cup instead of the blue cup is just an expectation that wasn't met. So I think if you can keep that in mind, it will help. Another thing is to ask yourself, if you're thinking of sleep training, again, we have to keep saying, it's not for everybody. If you want to go in and rock your child to sleep, feed them to sleep for the first three years or four years of their lives, your child will ultimately learn how to find their way to sleep on their own. I, we can guarantee that. 
And if that feels like that's the right thing for your family, that's what you should do. But if you're thinking, I can't make another night through getting up three times a night, I have got to get some rest. Think about your relationship with your child during the day. Are you cuddling your child? Are you communicating and talking to your child, playing with your child, feeding your child, meeting your child's needs on every other level during the day? If that's happening, I can guarantee you that your child is not going to feel abandoned at night. They will be disappointed. They'll be upset. Hey, where's my mom? Where's my dad? But they're not going to be traumatized. If sleep training or letting your child cry and find their way to sleep is the right path for your family. I think the reason we're emphasizing this is one of the major challenges is because this is what we hear from you, our listeners, from parents, especially before they go through the work of turning this over to their child. I think after they do it, we don't really hear much about it because it works so well. And all this boils down to really typically two to four nights of uh, transition. I always like to think of it. There's the land, the world of life before you get to sleep tonight. Then there's this world and territory where you're, everyone's sleeping tonight. And then there's a mountain to cross to get from one nation to another, one, one territory to another. So when parents are in that world of not sleeping through the night, I think this issue of their child suffering is what really gives them pause more than any other. Mm-hmm. It makes them hesitant to even think about asking their child to take on this responsibility. So that's why we're spending so much time on that. We want everyone who's approaching this transition to know it's very safe. Yes, and children will be disappointed at night, and they may voice their disappointment, but I have yet to see the trace of any of that last more than that night. In fact, when you get up in the morning, you're going to be greeted by a big grin, a toothy grin, a child pulling themselves up in the crib and very excited to see mom or dad in the morning. If that is your choice, it's not going to be traumatic for your child. So as you listen to our specific approaches to getting sleeping all night again at age four months and older in episode three of Parent Talk, you will note that we have a pretty high level of success. It's it's close to 100%. We have very few people telling us it doesn't work. I think over the last 30 years, maybe there's been one family who the child just never really agreed to take it over. But a very important point that you made, Susan, is that you may get to the point where your child's sleeping through the night and then they stop. You know, and you went through all this and everyone's sleeping tonight for many months and they get sick or you're on vacation. Those are the two things I think that cause relapse more than any other. But really getting sick and going on vacation are all the same theme, which is that your child's reminded that you are available in the middle of the night. They're reminded when they're sick because you're there when they're sick in the middle of the night. And they're might on vacation because you're all piled up in the same hotel room and you're more likely to notice them when they're calling for you, <laughs> their crib right next to your bed. So I think we find that parents have a little easier time because they know their child's okay through the transition from the first time. So that makes it a lot easier. But we just want to remind people that this is something they may have to do over and over again. And it gets back over to what's so valuable, which is we really encourage people to feel their way through this to get a sense of when they feel ready to turn it over to their child and when they're not ready, when they'd rather be with their child in the middle of the night. Either is fine with us. Our point is only if you want to sleep tonight, there's no other way but to hand it over to your child to take care of it. A couple things I'd like to say when I'm looking at these two camps, they'll say, if you don't let the child find their way to sleep and self-soothe, that the child will be dependent and will never be able to go off on their own. 
that is just not true. And a parent who likes to go to their child in the middle of the night, they can give their child ample opportunities during the day to be independent, to feed themselves as they get older, to undress and dress themselves, to use the the potty, as we have discussed in prior podcasts, you have to keep in mind that this isn't a black and white issue. It's fluid. And just what you said, Arthur, you're going to constantly have to revisit sleep because even a developmental surge, even if everything is the same, if it's the week before your child is finally going to pull themselves to a stand, I can assure you that their little brain is working at night, practicing it in their brain. And that often will wake a child up and you'll say, oh my God, they're nine months old and why are they waking up now. That's what I'm saying is that you just need to understand the nuance. I think you used that word at the beginning of that relationship. Parenting is an art. It's not a science. If it were science, there'd be two parenting books, not two million, you know? (laughs) And I mean, because the, the art of being a parent is being able to listen to your child's cues and picking up on those, and then acting in a way that's going to support that child in whichever direction that they're going. You know, I also wanted to say that there are things that parents can do, whether they're going to their child at night or they're not, that really sort of helps just develop getting children ready for sleep. A bedtime routine is extremely helpful. I don't know about you guys, but I'm grown up and I have a bedtime routine. I do certain things in a certain order because I know that helps my brain get ready, the fact that it's time to go to bed. Well, babies are the same. So whether it's a warm bath, a massage, putting them in their little sleep sacks, reading a book is always a recommended activity to get ready for sleep, brushing teeth and even babies, Arthur, right? Do you have to, you're supposed to use a wet washcloth or something to wipe gums around? Is that Perfect. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I also love the idea of thinking about your baby's sleep environment, getting blackout shades, a white noise machine, I think is invaluable for young children and making sure that the temperature of the room is not too hot. You know, making sure that it's a cool room. Is what, What's the temperature you think is best, Arthur? Like 68? Well, you know, this goes back to that average thing. So uh, the average, uh, so what's the neutral temperature? We always talk about 70 degrees or 68 degrees. Why is that? Because your body's like a furnace and it's generating a lot of heat and it'll heat your body up to a nice toasty 98.6 and you will lose heat. So you're increasing heat by burning all the food you eat and you're losing heat by radiating all the heat off your skin. And at 70 degrees, the heat you generate and the heat you radiate equilibrates at 98.6 internally. That's why we feel comfy at 70 degrees. But I might hit that neutral point at 67 degrees. I might hit it at 75 degrees. Everyone's a little different, but you know, in that range. And babies are really built to handle a wide range of temperatures. So, you know, there's Eskimo babies and there's Amazon babies. And And there's babies that live in El Paso where it's really hot in the summer. (laughs) I'm really glad you mentioned these uh, sleep tips because no, discussion of sleep would be complete without talking about safe sleep. And there was an article that just came out in the January issue of pediatrics. And they looked at the level of safety from various recommendations for safe sleep. So I think two things that people are most familiar with is uh, starting any sleep for your baby in the first year of life on their back and not face down. So hopefully all our listeners are doing that already. Uh, And the other, of course, is no smoking. That means you don't smoke and your friends don't smoke and your grandparents don't smoke around the child because both those things basically double the chance of SIDS. But one thing that um, I I was surprised at 
was the level of risk to having a baby outside the parent's room. It was a recommendation the Academy made some years ago, and I guess the depth of evidence for it uh, wasn't as deep as for smoking and for sleep position. And it turns out uh, more studies have been done, and the raw risk of sleeping in a separate bedroom in the first year of life, if you can believe it, is 20 times higher risk of SIDS compared to sleeping in the parent's room. And I actually was so amazed by that finding, I communicated with the author of the paper this week. And I said, basically, for real, you know, if if you increase the risk 20-fold, I would think I would be seeing that happen because a lot of babies are in their own bedroom. And she assured me that the risk of SIDS is so rare that even a 20-fold increase leaves it still a very infrequent occurrence. But there appears to be growing evidence that sleeping in your parents' room is safer than in another room, at least for the first six months of life, perhaps a year. And the theory is that when there's sputtering or some sounds of distress, even with monitors, parents are more likely to get there in time if they're in the same room. Hmm. So there seems to be some uh, substance to that recommendation. I just want to share that development with with our uh, listeners. Oh, I'm glad you did. And we hadn't discussed that. So that's new for me as well. But when you think about it historically, children usually did sleep in the room with their parents, that it's really more Mm. of a Western cultural paradigm that, that, that children be separated from their parents in a room and probably happened in the 1920s, you know, with more of the behavioral idea of psychology and how to quote unquote train children and that you didn't want to be picking them up too much. I mean, if you read some of those books in the 1920s, it would truly curl your hair. They really were stuck on the idea that it would be spoiling a child to meet their needs, basically. We're talking about the newborn period here. So I think that's really fascinating. Just came to mind that that came out, and I thought we'd share that with our listeners. Hot off the press. Oh, I'm glad you did. As we're ending our podcast, I just want to end by saying what is sleep is basically a big separation. And that's one of the reasons that it causes so much anxiety, both in the parent and some distress, you know, and frustration in the child. And I think that that's one of the reasons that parents have so much anxiety, because even though they're desperate for sleep, this idea of being separated from their child is one that really just sort of hits home. It hits their heart and makes this this whole process, it just gives it layers and layers of complexity. I really love that. It's a perfect way to end. I think most of our podcasts are going to be about relationships. And yeah, I, you know, I hadn't thought about it, but you're absolutely right. The first separation really is going to bed at night. Right. One of the big milestones that parents will notice, they, the child will start looking at their hands and going, ooh, it takes them a while to realize that, oh, that's, that's part of me. You know, I'm the one making my fingers move up and down. I loved that. To me, that was a very exciting moment in the development of my own children and grandchildren. And you have to know that with that wonderful, wonderful developmental step, the, the downside, if, if you can call it such, is the idea that, oh, I can be separated from my parent. And I think that that has a lot to do with these strong feelings about sleep. That's a terrific way to end our podcast. So with that in mind, uh, we at Parent Talk hope you enjoy helping your child gain the skills they need that our series on sleep and other issues regarding parenting help you get there with your own confidence and loving satisfaction. So take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks again for listening to the Parent Talk podcast. You can find back episodes and send us your parenting questions at parenttalkpodcast.com. 
And don't forget to visit our founding sponsor, Naturepedic, at naturepedic.com.